turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark 13, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 31 today. Because of the length of the text, I'll read it throughout the sermon. But to begin, I simply want to ask, do you ever wonder what the end will be like? I mean, if you had to venture a guess, would your answer be an optimistic or a pessimistic one? George Orwell wrote in his dystopian novel, 1984, If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on the human face forever. I think it's safe to say that Orwell was a glass-half-empty kind of a guy. What about you? What does the future look like for you when you look into your proverbial crystal ball and discern the signs of the times? What do you see? A dawning age of Aquarius... An increasingly improved society, infinite nothingness. Maybe you're more by the book kind of person, by the book, I mean the Bible. You know that it contains the key to understanding the future. And as a student of Bible prophecy, you have your own interpretation of the end, I'm sure. Christians widely diverge on their understanding of this topic. Some claiming to be, here's some official terms, premillennial some post-millennial, some amillennial, and some just give up on it altogether and claim to be pan-millennial. By that they mean it will all pan out in the end. <laughs> With our understanding of the end, our misunderstanding of the end, our ignorance of it firmly in mind, I want to ask you another question. This one's really more important. It's less speculative, more real. How do you feel about the end? I'm not asking about the facts here, I'm asking about feelings, and I'm not trying to play a psychologist, but just hang with me for a moment. How do you feel about it? Would you consider yourself to be more hopeful or hesitant? Now, this is an important question. But before you give your final answer, wouldn't you like some divine insight? Just a little more clarity on the facts. Before we try to portray our feelings... We do well to listen to the Lord of the universe actually tell us a little bit of what those final days would be like. This would best inform our opinion. As we continue in our study of Mark, you'll remember that the disciples asked Jesus several questions about the end of time as well, just like we are today. And Jesus... In this context, it just established himself to be the officially validated Messiah by means of his entry into Jerusalem, his authoritative teaching in the temple. Everyone in that culture would have recognized finally that this man possesses at least some modicum of messianic authority. And these questions, though, that the disciples asked were prompted by, you may remember, 
them leaving the temple. Jesus has finally left the temple complex. He's only a few days away from his crucifixion. And the disciples make this comment that just kind of seems strange and out of place. They remark on the beauty and the grandeur of the temple, and they talk about how great and impressive the buildings are. And yet Jesus, in response, once again, he's already done it one time, but once again pronounces judgment on the, on the temple, thereby signaling questions about the end of the age, because they cannot imagine the future being a bright and hopeful one if the temple is lying in ruins. Thus, in Mark 13, we have the single longest answer that Jesus gives to any question in the Gospels. Interestingly, this longest answer comes to a question about prophecy, about the end. So for all those who would try to dismiss this topic as unimportant and not that relevant, Jesus seems to have other thoughts on the issue. Jesus does something great here. He uses the disciples' concern as a platform to prepare them for his absence, namely by clarifying the coming hope. Now, whether or not they could be hopeful or hesitant about the end would depend on Jesus' answer to their question about the end. The suffering to come with the temple would make them think that it was the end of the world, and Jesus is going to point out that something even bigger would be on the horizon. While the destruction of the temple would be this harbinger of the final days, Jesus' teaching will disclose so much more than that. To understand the structure of what you see here in Mark 13, for those of you who are studying this passage with us through the weeks, you simply need to remember the question the disciples ask in verse 5. You see it there in your Bibles. When will these things take place? Second question, what will be the signs of their coming? So if this chapter seems really weird and confusing to you, just remember the question that his disciples ask. You'll note in verses 5 through 31, he answers the second question about the signs. He gives them the signs of his coming. And you can even break those down. In verses 5 through 13, you have the non-signs. <laughs> He's saying, look, like, here's some things that you think will be signs of the end, but really aren't signs of the end. These are the things that will continue to happen all the way up to the end of the age. We talked about those last week. But then he, he starts to present the real signs of the end of time, the last days in our text today. Verses 14 to 31. And then next week, we're going to see the answer to the second question. Or excuse me, the first question, when? When will this happen? We'll see that in verses 32 to 37. So let's stick to where we've confined ourselves today in verses 14 through 31. What are some of the signs of the end? What insight does Jesus provide on the future? How does he intend, here's the better one, how does he intend for us to put this into practice? These are the things to be on the lookout for as you're reading the text today. I want you to know, first and foremost, practically and pastorally, Jesus will use this insight into the end to encourage his disciples' endurance and hope in coming tribulation or trouble. He is being pastoral. He is being practical. He is not being speculative. He has an agenda. And as such, this passage also helps us. It helps me. It helps you. Because the end is coming. And we need to be ready. So to encourage our endurance, to make us hopeful as opposed to hesitant, Jesus, through this text, grants us insight into the end. And this insight comes in two parts. 
First, there will be, uh, the end of time will be a time of unparalleled trouble. You're going to see that in verses 14 to 23. Second, we're going to see that the end of time will be a time of unstoppable triumph. Unparalleled trouble, verses 14 to 23. Unstoppable triumph, verses 24 to 31. And I'll just forewarn you, it's going to take us longer to cover the first than it will the second. So I will be sensitive to the lunch hour soon approach. Let's look at the first insight into the end. The end will be a time of unparalleled trouble, verses 14 to 23. Let's look at the text. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Let me pause here for a moment. We've already got some pretty heavy stuff on our plate. Now, you need to understand that he is finally getting to the real signs of the end. Remember, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, false teachers. Those are things that will always happen between now and the return of Jesus. He says, look, don't get yourself worked up over those. But at this point, things seem to change. In the first few verses, it seemed like he was talking about the non-signs of the end. But now, he, he switches tones here. He goes from using, and a couple grammatical observations, pardon these, but this may help you. He goes from using second person plural pronouns, y'all, I like that, to third person pronouns, he, she. Second person, when I say you, I'm talking about the people right in front of me. Once I switch to third person, I'm talking about someone somewhere else. So I want you to note that. He was really keying in on the group of people in front of him, and now all of a sudden he gets to this passage and he starts talking about third person as if it's some future group. The second thing I would have you notice about this text as we work our way through it is that whereas verses 5 to 13, the verses on the non-signs, they called for steadfastness, steadiness. Remember he was saying, let's calm down, don't worry, take it in stride, this is going to happen. But do you notice what happens here, beginning at verse 14 and following? He's telling them to run for your life. Get out of Dodge. Take off. So it seems very clearly that something different is taking place here. 5 to 13, non-signs. 14 to 23, now we're at the real signs of the end. Different strategy for this point in time. And so as we get to these signs, there's kind of like a domino. There will be one event that will kick off the unique signs of the end. And the first event that Jesus gives us, although there could be others that we could see from other passages of Scripture, first event he gives us is one of unparalleled sacrilege. Now, I don't like to use subpoints, but there are three different things here. So if you want to write these down, you can. Just My big point is that you see that this is a time of unparalleled trouble. But I say it's unparalleled trouble first and foremost because there will be an event of unparalleled sacrilege. You see it in verse 14 labeled the abomination of desolation. I remember reading this as a a teenager, always asking my pastor, what is this? What is he talking about? 
And I don't ever recall him answering my question. (laughs) But I'll try to answer it for you this morning. This abomination of desolation seems to consist, just by looking at the text, of someone standing where he shouldn't. Now, since in context we've been talking about the Jewish temple and it being a holy space, it would make sense that someone is standing in the Jewish temple who shouldn't be there. And it could seem rather enigmatic to us, but I would assure you that the people who were reading this in the first century would have had a lot more clarity on the abomination of desolation than we have today. I mean, the words themselves, when you're looking at the grammar and the original language, it speaks of some type of religiously detestable thing or person that would actually bring about desolation. What do you think of when you think of desolate? Emptiness, people fleeing something. So, to put this all together, the abomination of desolation is some religious thing or event that would cause the faithful to abandon their sacred space. It would be a scandal that would defile and profane the Jerusalem temple, rendering it unusable. This is pretty extreme. This isn't just somebody accidentally stumbled into the wrong place. This is somebody doing something so bad that the Jews themselves would abandon this place and no longer use it as a place of worship, even though it was the place that God had prescribed through the ages. This phrase was part of their religious background as well. They would have recognized it from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. In that particular passage, Daniel was speaking about the end of days where the prophet therefore tells this event. And interestingly... The Jews of that time thought that the abomination of desolation had already taken place. Jump with me back in your calendars to 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian general, invaded Jerusalem and he outraged the Jews at the time by barging into the temple sanctuary, not just the court, but he goes into the holy place and listen to what he does. He erects an altar to Zeus... And then on top of the altar to Yahweh, he burns an offering. And guess what he burns? A pig. For those of you who aren't aware, the Jews would have been grossly offended by the offering of a pig in the sanctuary. And then the book of Maccabees tells us, which is not a biblical Christian book, but it is a historically historically justified book. It says that this was the abomination of desolation. They thought that the thing had already taken place. Whatever this thing is... It would be something like that, a ruler stepping in, profaning the temple, making it absolutely unusable. But here's what's interesting. They may have thought that the abomination of desolation had already taken place, but it's clear to me that Jesus doesn't think that it's taken place yet. (laughs) He says to them, you need to be on the lookout for this time when someone comes in and profanes the temple in a unique way, And whatever Antiochus did didn't even hold a candle to what this future guy is going to do. Mark, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even adds this interesting note. You see it there? Let the reader understand. He hasn't done that in the entire gospel. He hasn't referenced the reader. Here he's encouraging contemplation on this because... He has carefully crafted a conspicuous phrase that gives us details into the nature of the event. 
It is an event, the abomination of desolation. It makes it sound like it's just some kind of happening. But notice, there is a masculine pronoun. Someone will be standing. A man will be standing where he shouldn't. I'm only belaboring this for those of you who are students of prophecy because some have tried to tie this event to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, claiming that this abomination took place when the Roman flags were placed in the temple. But the grammar's clear here. He says, let the reader understand, this isn't about flags. This is about a person. And this is about a person doing something more devastating. The Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10 describe this. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. And then Revelation 13, verses 14 and 15. When you read these in conjunction with what Jesus is saying here in the book of Mark, it seems that There will be an Antichrist figure who will break his peace with Israel and step into the Jewish temple and claim to be God, demanding worship. And this is just the first event of the end. This is the one that will kick off the rest. So what's the rest? Well, you've got this unparalleled sacrilege followed by unparalleled suffering in verse 15. Notice, he says, Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house or take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Whatever is going on here, it is a time of urgency. Again, third person, some distant group of people, they're going to have to take off. They're going to have to cut and run. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the way houses are in Palestine, it could seem kind of strange. Like, what are these people doing up on their roof? I haven't been on my roof the entire time I've been at my house. (laughs) Well, you just need to know that the houses in Palestine at that time are flat roofs. And they were actually built right beside one another. There wasn't even walkways, typically, between the houses. It was kind of like their backyard. They didn't have yards. So on the top of their house was where they did some basic farming, some agricultural work where they would play with their kids or whatever. There's even a command in Deuteronomy that you were supposed to build the walls high around your roof so that your kids wouldn't fall off. (laughs) I mean, it was a recreational area. And Jesus is saying, look... This is going to be so bad. As soon as you see this happen, you're going to have to get out of Dodge so quickly that you won't even have time to go from the outside of your house to take the steps down and run inside and get anything. You just need to go, potentially, running from house to house to get out of here as fast as you can. He's given us some insight into how bad this time will be. He says, not only do you go from house to house, but he says, look, it's going to be so bad, it's going to come so quick, that if you're out in the field and you're working and if you've taken your coat off, Because it's hot. Don't even go back to get your cloak. Those of you who have been in our study of the Gospel of Mark, you remember that the cloak was one of the most valuable possessions that people in the ancient Near East owned. And he's saying, just leave it. It's not even worth you going back to get it. You've got to take off. And then verse 17 will move your heart when you read it carefully because he says, Alas for women who were pregnant and for those who were nursing infants in those days. Pray it may not happen in the winter. In fact, the suffering will be especially troublesome for mothers and mothers-to-be. One of the things that blew me away this week is to hear the compassion of Jesus as he interjects a word of pain and displeasure. In our English translation, it says, alas. When was the last time you or I ever used the word alas? (laughs) But in that culture, that word, the original word, would be like an audible, oh, A moan of disappointment being expressed sympathetically. This this is the sound that someone would make when they would hear of someone else going through some kind of emotional or physical trauma. 
It's a sound you make when you hear of someone going through a divorce. Oh. The sound that you make when you hear of someone else enduring child abuse. Oh. The sound that you would make when you hear of someone having a work-related accident that dismembers them in some way. You're like, oh, what a tragedy. And Jesus says that even the most physically vulnerable in those days will not be excluded from the suffering to come. And this pains him. I'm always blown away by the compassion of our Lord, but also his willingness to be clear. He doesn't pull any punches. He's he's being straight up honest with them. This will be bad. In fact, it will be so bad that he commands them to pray that this doesn't happen in the winter. We don't have many, many prayer requests from Jesus, but this is one of them. Pray that these events do not happen in winter. Why? Because in Palestine, during the winter... The creeks would have been swollen and uncrossable. It would have been almost impossible for someone to safely make it out of Jerusalem during that particular time of year. And even now, in non-tropical climates, I'm not talking about Naples here, we know how difficult it can be to make a quick trip in the winter. When it's cold, you need more clothes. There's no vegetation. You're going to have to bring more provisions. And so this is especially true in Jerusalem. He's saying this will be bad. And then he explains it all in verse 19. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and notice this, and never will be. Do you catch the timeline? (laughs) He invites them to think back to the very beginning when God made it all. And note, he even adds this little, that God created, reminding his Roman readers that God was the one that created it. And then to think ahead from this point all the way to the future. And he says there will never be anything like this. In fact, it's so uniquely bad that apart from God's gracious intervention and assistance, it would be humanly unsurvivable. That's why verse 20 says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. God in His grace has already decided to shorten the days. He will not allow total annihilation. It will be that bad that if He allowed it to continue further, the entire planet would be wiped out. I don't don't really like talking about this, but this is just what's in the text. It says it will be a time of basically genocide, physical death, that threatens the existence of the entire human race apart from God's gracious intervention. And this was already predicted back in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 time of trouble. Revelation 7.14 calls it a time of great tribulation. We label this the great tribulation. But what I like here is that there's there's, there's a silver lining in this dark cloud. Notice why he cuts it short. This is the first note of relief that we've seen in the entire passage. He says, for the sake of the elect whom he chose elect. It's a designation for believers as the special objects of God's saving grace. The term was originally applied in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel, but by the time Mark wrote his gospel, it was a familiar description of the Christian community. What I love about this is that God, in His sovereignty, limits this time for the good of His chosen people. If you want more research on that, by the way, because I know some of you could struggle with this concept, 
Romans 8.33 talks about this. Colossians 3.12 talks about this. 2 Timothy 2.10 talks about this. And Revelation 7.14 talk about this. Every one of those passages addressing God's people, believers, as elect. Now, I don't want you to resist this truth. I don't know where you are on the theological background or spectrum, but let's just look at the text. It's crystal clear. It's black and white. The ones who receive special protection from the wrath of God are the ones that He has chosen. And you need to keep in mind that Mark 13 was written to believers. Jesus is talking to His disciples. He's not preaching a public sermon here. Doctrines of grace like this one are designed to give believers comfort. They're not designed to confuse you. They're not designed to compromise your evangelism. They're not designed to consign unbelievers to hell. What he wants you to know is that it will be a special time of suffering, but you are chosen. He still loves you. There is a reminder that even though God's people will endure this in some way, shape, and form, He still cares. They're, they're still the special objects of His grace. And when are you the most tempted to think that God has totally forgotten about you? When are you the most tempted to think that he is, I am nothing special in His eyes? He has left me to my own sin. He has left me to the designs of this world. When are you most tempted to think I'm nothing special before Him? And it's in this very moment that He reminds us, no, even though you endure this suffering, you have been chosen. I really like the fact that God places divine limitations on the amount of suffering. He could have let it go on so that everyone could have died, and yet He always knows where to draw the line. It reminds me of the book of Job, where Satan needed to get permission from God to test Job. Maybe that's a helpful thing for you to remember as well. When you're in the middle of it, and it seems inescapable, and you're thinking, what in the world is God? Did He fall asleep? And you remember that, no, He doesn't allow it to go, but so far, He's in control of that. There's sovereign control, there's sovereign election. But the larger point here, for us, signs, is that everyone at that time will endure this, and I need to make a technical note here. Again, some of you don't care about this stuff, some of you really do, so give me a moment. Although I personally believe that the church will be raptured before the Great Tribulation. This text doesn't talk about that. There's no mention of a rapture here. Jesus doesn't make that point. If you want to know more about where the rapture fits in regard to the Great Tribulation, take our systematic theology seminar the next time it's offered. Or talk to one of our pastors or elders. But for now, let's not get sidetracked grasps the point. This unparalleled suffering and sacrilege stand as a sign of the end. But that's not all. There's one more. There's unparalleled deception. Look at verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ. Or look, there He is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now, if you were paying attention last week, you're going to notice that this sounds eerily similar to verses 6 and 7. And you're probably thinking like, all right, you told me that last week these are non-signs of the end. These are things not to be too worried about. But here you are saying that this is a sign of the end, and this is something that should signal our concern. Well, look, there's two key differences between what's going on in verses 6 and 7 and what's going on here in this text. Notice it carefully. 
while there will always be counterfeit Christ, pseudo-saviors, mock messiahs, the ones in the great tribulation will actually have the ability to perform signs and wonders. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 affirm this. So also does Revelation 13, verses 1 to 10. They're, they're supernaturally empowered. They actually have the capacity to do some of these things. But there's something else different about these men at this time. Because it says these satanically empowered agents will actually target who? The elect. In verses 6 and 7, it just seems to be a general deception for all people. And yet here, they are specifically targeting God's people. But they will not succeed. Do you notice even in the text it says... They will deceive if it were possible, or if possible, the elect. (laughs) It's like they're going to try, but they won't even be able to. We're reminded again of the perseverance of the believer. These supernaturally empowered satanic figures will try to trip up God's people, and they will fail. This is a great reminder for those of you who struggle with the assurance of salvation. Either you're here and you struggle, or you know someone who struggles. You need to remember that there is a special mark of protection on God's people that does not go away in time of trouble. Jesus reminds us of this in John 10, verses 27 to 29. Listen to this. You may need to use it with yourself or someone else this week. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He says that about you, believer. That's good to know. Even John connects this in his later writings to the time of the tribulation and Antichrist. Listen to 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. All right, you got the context? Now listen to this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. He is making it clear. If anyone ever appears to be with the Christian community and then goes away from the Christian community, they were never part of the Christian community in the first place. The assurance is that if you are indeed in Christ, you will always be in Christ, even if the forces of hell target you. You may be thinking, I don't even know if I'm going to be in this tribulation. Look, listen. You are in tribulation. And if this works for something as outstanding as the great tribulation, something that is the worst in all time, if this is the hope that Jesus provides for something that will be the worst, how much better will it help you in anything less than that? This is a great reminder. You will not be overcome. You will be preserved. You will be protected. So now we've been given these three signs of trouble. Sacrilege, suffering, and this is for the sake of alliteration, pseudo-saviors, false saviors. And now Jesus brings this around to a very familiar application. Here's what you're wondering. What am I going to do with this? And he says, right here at the end of the passage, watch out. Be on guard. 
This is the same Greek word that's in verse 5 and verse 9, this text obviously, and then in verse 33. I think if there's anything that Jesus wants us to do with this is to be ready, to watch out, to be on guard. As hard as this stuff may be to hear, there's, there's something about this that you have to love. You have to love the raw honesty of our Lord. He doesn't overpromise and underdeliver. He is very upfront about the facts. He dispels any myths here about some type of burgeoning utopia or some higher, happier evolutionary stage. I think we should appreciate such honesty. Could you imagine how disenchanted, frustrated, disappointed God's people would be if they would have endured this time and He had not told them? I'll never forget speaking to a young girl. By young girl, I mean probably 22, 23. Struggling with her second round of cancer. Life-threatening leukemia. The doctors told her that if she made it through the first one, and her markers were good for two years, that she would never have to really worry about this again. Yet somewhere into one month or two away from that final date where she was hoping her markers would be clear. It came back. The symptoms came back. The trauma came back. As she began chemo and radiation for the second time, I went to see her at the UCLA Cancer Center, which is one of the top five in the country. And I knew her chances were slim. We all did. Suffering to come was sure. So you can imagine that I really wondered what the doctors would tell her and what I was supposed to tell her. I mean, this was just a fact. Well, I'm not always the best at this. I went into that hospital room that day and I just listened. What do you say? And I'll never forget what I heard. I'll never forget how these expert doctors communicated with her. They were honest. They were candid. They had told her that she has about a 25 to 30% chance of living. They told her that she should not be hopeful that she would be able to beat this, but that they would try the best that they could. You know what I heard from her? A settled honesty. She admitted to me that she didn't want to die. And as much as everyone would like to make her out to be some type of great Christian martyr, she's scared to death of death. She was settled that this is what God had in store for her. There was no misplaced optimism, just raw facts. And someone indwelled by the Spirit, seeing the signs of her own, and yet prepared and on guard. It seems that Jesus' honesty about the unparalleled horror of the end is designed to provoke a similar sobriety and settledness within us all. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He tells them plainly the horrific signs of the end that they so dreaded. Why? 
so that they would live ready. He forewarned them so as to forearm them, and he does the same for us. The question is this, are you ready? Jesus preached that preparation of his coming kingdom would require repentance from self-rule. He wanted to make sure that the people who would hear this in generations future For those of you today who may be here and you're unsure about this end of time thing, you're unsure about your relationship with Jesus, He intends for texts like this to wake you up and make you ready. An end is coming. Maybe you're here today and you're not an unsure non-Christian, but maybe you're just an unsettled saint. You know that you've trusted in Jesus and yet there's something about the end of time that you still don't like. Pardon the trite phrase, but you do need to keep your eyes on the silver lining that's located here in this text. There's three things specifically that you could hold on to in time of great tribulation, whether it be this one or some other. One is special election we just talked about. God has chosen you. He still loves you. The second is sovereign power. He's the one that has the the ability, the capacity to let the, the trial and to let the difficulty only go so far. And then supernatural protection. It is impossible to overturn the faith of one of those who truly belong in Him. If these rays of hope would sustain a future generation of believers through the Great Tribulation, how much more could these simple truths help you or someone else in their suffering today? How could you use these to help someone else? How could you use these in your own life? Here's a very practical challenge for you. Use one of these truths to impart hope to a brother or sister in Christ this week who is facing what seems like the end of the world. I promise it will help. So you want to know about the end? First, it will be a time of unparalleled trouble. But he doesn't stop there. He tells us that the end will also be a time of unstoppable triumph. The end will be a time of unstoppable triumph. Look at verses 24 to 27. He'll continue this all the way to verse 31, but let's just look at these four verses at the moment. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now what we have here, folks, is an apocalyptic promise. Followed by, you'll see it in the next few verses, a picture of a fig tree. And then there's going to be a practical application that brings all this together. Here's what you're going to get when you put all these three things together. Tribulation will ultimately end in triumph. That's what he wants them to see. Tribulation will ultimately end in triumph. You'll notice in this passage that we just read that the language seems pretty different. We don't normally talk this way, and we haven't seen Jesus talk this way in the entire book of Mark. I mean, the language here is cosmic. It's otherworldly. Just like you would be able to identify different kinds of literature by hearing people read. I mean, if I were just to read an article here, you didn't know where it came from, you'd be able to tell if it was an op-ed piece in a newspaper. You'd be able to tell if it was a comedy monologue. 
You'd be able to tell if it was a fourth grader's understanding of how bees pollinate plants. I mean, you could pick up on different kinds of literature just by listening to them. In a similar way, I think we need to be careful to understand that in the Bible, even though it's one book, there are several different kinds of literature in the Bible. There's gospels, there's narratives, there's prophecy, there's law. But even within those categories, there's different types of literature. So you've got the book of Mark, and it's a narrative. It's about Jesus. But here, we have a sub-narrative. What is that? That's Jesus' teaching. So now we have a lesson. But even within the lesson, now we have a different kind of literature. You know what that is? It's called apocalyptic. It's different than prophecy. Most of us are very familiar with prophecy. Prophecy is basically something bad will happen if you don't do this, or something good will happen if you do this. Typically hinged on the theme of repentance toward God. But apocalyptic is so different. There's only a couple places in Scripture where you can find it. One is in the book of Daniel, the other is in Revelation, and there are some smatterings in between, and this is one of those. It comes with its own set of rules. Apocalyptic literature is for anyone who is going through the worst suffering ever, or someone who will ever endure such suffering, and that's the kind of person that's targeted in apocalyptic literature. It presents an alternative picture of reality. For the person who is mired in suffering and problems, you may only see pain and sorrow and loss out of life's window and and down life's road. But apocalyptic presents a picture of the glorious end of the highway. This is where the painful paths of this world ultimately end. A coming and conquering Jesus. Every piece of apocalyptic literature ends with the glorious hope of Christ's full and final return. Now, what I want you to notice is that that's exactly what's going on here. This is where the painful paths of this world end. The coming, conquering Son of Man. Notice, in strong contrast with the signs and wonders performed by the false prophets, the sign of the coming Son is in the sky. It is something that is undeniable. And when you come across apocalyptic literature like this, one scholar notes that it is more metaphorical, more than metaphorical, but less than literal. It's kind of tricky. Basically, what we see here is that there will be cosmic phenomena and disruption that will be an earth-shattering event as the powers of the heavens, now they would have described that as wind and heat and gravity, those things that we've given scientific labels to today, but they saw that as the powers in the heavens. These things will be unsettled. And like the dimming of the lights before the opening of a play, this cosmic disturbance will highlight the amazing coming Son of Man that we read about earlier today in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. What do we see? That the Son of Man comes, He comes in the clouds with great power and glory, and He comes with His angels, and He sends His angels to gather the elect. And you even see that phrase there that talks about them coming from the four winds of the earth. For for them, that's north, south, east, and west. From the heavens to the earth. It is just dramatic language talking about every believer everywhere. No one will be left out of this. Everyone will be rescued by the coming sun. And what's so fascinating is Jesus is a couple days away from dying. And what we see here is that the Savior, who would soon suffer and die, is here presented as the soon coming sovereign. The Savior, who would soon suffer and die, is here presented as the soon-coming Sovereign, even though He's going to go through the worst ever. (laughs) He's still 
hopeful and reminds his people of the coming hope of the Son of Man and the second return of Jesus. The saints who are mangled and maligned are gathered to their all-powerful ruler out of their distress. And so, what do we do with this? Well, verse 28 tells us. Look, from, this, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, Jesus has just given the promise. Now he's going to give a picture here that's going to help us understand what we're supposed to do with this promise. Basically, it deals with trees being able to tell us what season it is. Now, for those of you who have been studying with this, don't get this confused with his parable in Mark chapter 11 about the nation of Israel. This has nothing to do with the nation of Israel. He's just giving an illustration that they all would have been familiar with. In Palestine, the trees, um, excuse me, fig trees, that would lose their leaves in the winter. They were some of the few trees that actually would do this. They bloom later in the spring. So, you could know that when you were looking at one of these fig trees, whenever it was stiff and dry, and then the winter twigs, or um, excuse me, winter twigs become tender, then, due to the rising sap, summer's coming. It's pretty obvious. It's a simple analogy. For those of us who live in normal climates, again, Naples is not a normal climate. We know that when the leaves fall during the winter, winter's around the corner. Or maybe you grew up saying this as a kid, even though it never really happened this way. April showers bring May flowers. Well, the, the thing is, like, well, in normal climates, again, it, when you see rain coming down, you know, like around springtime, and you know flowers should be coming in May. In a similar way, that's what he's talking about here. Look, just like when you see a fig tree, and you see certain things happening to it, like leaves starting to come forward, and it's no longer hard and crusty, but it's actually getting soft and tender, you know that summer's around the corner. And in a similar way, Without any master's degree in botany, <laughs> we can understand that the appearance of the unparalleled trouble in verses 14 to 23 means that the unstoppable triumph, the return of the Son of Man in verses 24 to 27, is right around the corner. One leads to the other. What you think would be the sign of your ultimate destruction actually is the sign of your salvation because they're so closely connected to one another. That's why he says in verse 29, so also when you see these things taking place, what things? He's talking about the great tribulation. You know that he is near. He is at the very gates. I love this. Again, it's another analogy. When you see this happening, he's standing right at the door. He's about to walk in. I remember growing up and my room at our house was over the garage. And I always knew when my dad was coming home. I never really knew when he was going to come in the door because he always had to clean the mud off his boots. But I knew when he was home. Because one, I could hear the roar of his truck <laughs> as it rumbled into the driveway. Second, I could hear the squeak of the gate as it would open. And then third, the most you know, like unsettling thing, if you weren't ready for it, was for the garage door to open <laughs> and to begin to shake my entire room. <laughs> Dad's home. That's what he's saying. When this happens, Jesus is close. In fact, he's not just close. He says in verse 30, truly I say to you, again, judicial pronouncement, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation? The generation that sees these signs? In that same time, there will be the returning of Jesus 
This unprecedented suffering, far from being a discouragement, is actually a delight. Remember we talked about birth pains last week? This isn't Braxton Hicks. This is the real thing. And when you experience these labor pains, when you see these things coming, you know that the doorway of motherly hope is opening. That child will soon be in your arms. And in a similar way, connect. Connect this unprecedented suffering with the sovereign coming of the Son of Man. These things are related. It is an unstoppable triumph. Now, some people have tried to say that this generation refers to that group of disciples, but that doesn't make any sense in the context because they didn't see these things happen. (laughs) They didn't see the coming of the Son of Man. They didn't experience this unique, unprecedented end. He's saying that, look, the end-time crisis will not be of indefinite duration. And I love how he underscores it. This is how he ends. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. He's saying, look, just in case you're tempted to think that I'm just bluffing. He actually invokes the the pronouncement of Yahweh in Isaiah 40, verse 8, when he says that his words will last longer than the earth will. Jesus isn't just talking about his words in general. He's talking specifically about these end-time prophecies. You can count on it. It will last longer than the earth will, I promise you. So, this is why he answers their question regarding the signs. He not only is warning them about the trouble, but listen, he is infusing them with hope. And so, here are some lessons for you today, too, in particular, in regard to the coming triumph of our Lord. One, pain and problems will end. Pain and problems will end. Jesus reminds us that his return will swallow up the pain of the great tribulation. And if it can do that, it can remedy every trouble you'll ever face between now and then. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I could endure anything if I knew that it was going to end. I feel that way every time I'm doing ab exercises. I'm looking at the clock, holding a plank, thinking, come on, 60 seconds, get there. Look, and it goes to things bigger than that. I mean, you think of, or even my wife and I have been reflecting recently on these days of child-rearing with so many sleepless nights, like back to back to back. <laughs> we just keep telling ourselves, look, this won't last forever. This isn't, this isn't the end. Somebody has defined hope with an acronym saying, it means hold on, pain ends. You know, that's a fine acronym. But there's much more going on in this text here than just pain ending. Of course, the pain ends. But Jesus' return is not the mere cessation of pain, but it is the beginning of all true pleasure. That's the second lesson. Pleasure and promise begin. What does this particular passage teach us that we can use this week? One, pain and problems will end. Two, pleasure and promise begin. The true pleasure... True promise fulfillment begins here at this point. You need to use this reality the next time you're trying to help yourself or someone else in suffering. Here's another one for your toolkit this week. Romans 8, verses 16 to 18. Notice how Paul describes it. In end time setting, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, 
fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed hereafter. It isn't just that pain ends, it's that pleasure begins. In the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, those of you who aren't familiar, it's that series of children's books that serve as an allegory of the Christian faith. You've got these children who step into this magical land and experience all these adventures. And and at the head of the story is Aslan, this lion. He's the one that stands for Christ. So as you make it to the last book, the last battle, the kids have endured all kinds of things. The author writes, As Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. For those who have trusted in Jesus, there will be a glorious end. So let's get back to our original question. How does the end look for you? Is it glorious? Is it like the beginning of a great story which goes on forever in which every chapter will be better than the one before? Or as you listen to this today, does it seem rather grotesque? Like George Orwell's boot stamping on the human face forever. More simply, are you hopeful or hesitant? I assure you that Jesus saw Orwell's boot, but that through this text, he assures us that the forever part is false. The Son of Man will come, send His angels to gather His elect who have held fast to the end. And despite their suffering, the future belongs to God's people because He will intervene in the world to destroy evil forever. You can't place your hope in some type of imaginary societal progress. You can only hope in God's merciful intercession. That's how you're ready. Yes, the end will come. Yes, it will be a time of unparalleled trouble. So hold on. Hold on to the truths of His sovereign control, His election, His special protection. But very soon after that, it will also be a time of unstoppable triumph. So hold out. A better day is coming. For those of you who were to answer the question, hopeful. You say, you know what, I'm hopeful about the end. Can I give you a final word? If Jesus teaches us anything in this text, it's that those who place their hope in Him will not be disappointed. The reason why we have hope isn't just because we're optimistic people. It's because we know Jesus. We trust in Him. The hope in Christ that saves you from your sin is the same hope that will also secure you through adversity. 
you know that to be true? I know you do because you say you're hopeful, but here's the deal. Some people aren't. There are some believers who are admired in adversity and difficulty and despair. And things may be all fine and well and dandy and good with you, but you need to be an agent of change and comfort in their life. You find hope in Christ, point them to Christ. If you're here today and you're hesitant, I say this with sympathy. If you have not found hope in Jesus Christ as the one who died for your sin, was buried, rose again to show that you could have hope of eternal life, if you're not trusting in Him alone, I totally get why you're hesitant. And I say this kindly, you have every right to be. To quote C.S. Lewis again, he wisely remarked, when the author himself comes on the stage, the play is over. It's too late to change the play or the players. Do you get what he's saying? Look, please understand, you will not one day find hope in Jesus for the end if you do not this day find hope in Jesus for the in-between. Talk to one of us about this before the service ends today. A pastor, a church member. Don't let this day end without at least giving us a chance to talk with you about the exclusive hope that you can have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, make us hopeful in Christ. Give us hope for the end. A soberness, a settledness, but also a joy. And not just for the end, but everything in between. Pray that we who know you and have peace in you would pass that along to others. For those who don't know that peace, we pray they'd be saved and find Christ to be their all in all today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.